From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, students, college students, get to ask the questions of Colorado's Democratic and Republican candidates for U.S. Senate. What are you going to do step by step to create equal opportunity and equal human rights to immigrants and indigenous people while convincing your political party to support you? While there are those with DACA, thousands of other immigrant youth are not able to get the work authorization and wait in limbo as well. What would you propose as a solution for all the youth whose future is on the line? Setting aside DACA from the broken immigration system we constantly put forward to fix, why has a solution for DACA and a solution, say, for my legal status not been set aside from the whole immigration system? Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Too often, conversations about election issues don't include the voices of young people. Today, we hear from students, college students, who had the opportunity to question Colorado's U.S. Senate candidates directly and in person. I recently hosted student panels at Metropolitan State University of Denver through a special project known as the Solution Studio. The students asked questions of Democratic incumbent Michael Bennett and first-time candidate Republican Joe O'Day. Topics included affordable housing, homelessness, and immigration. The candidates met with each panel of students separately on the campus in a timed question-and-answer format. In today's show, we shared the discussion about immigration. As the moderator, I kick things off with Joe O'Day. Americans know our immigration system is in dire need of meaningful reform. How will you get Congress to finally pass comprehensive immigration reform? And what would be the major components of this plan? Well, to start with, um, my wife's family uh, immigrated here in the 40s. Uh, she's a, a Mexican immigrant from her, her grandparents came over. Uh, he was working for the railroad here. And so this issue is very personal to me. At the same time, I have a company that employs 80% Hispanics uh, and has for years. Two of my partners grew up at our company. They were there for 21, 22 years. They started as laborers, went through the trades just as I did. And they uh, have advanced to the place where they're now general and superintendents and they're actually running my company so I can run for office, by the way. And they're helping me with that. They're full partners of mine. This immigration system has to get solved. Um, I would attack it with about a four point plan. Uh, first off, we've got to secure our border. We can't have people just coming across willy nilly. We can't let the cartels control our border. We can't have human trafficking. We can't have fentanyl coming across here, record paces that's killing good young Americans. Uh, and, and we also need to make sure that 
Um, we know who's crossing the border. It's a humanitarian crisis. We need to recognize that right now and we need to solve it. Uh, we need more border patrol. They're being inundated even at the border crossings. They don't have the proper time to take care and check people in because there's so many people coming across our border right now. We need to complete the wall. That's what the border patrol is asking us to do to make the border more secure. But we need big gates in the wall. I actually believe that we can put a bill together that would solve this issue and we can get 60 signatures in the US Senate. We have to make sure that we recognize that there's DACA kids here through no fault of their own. They need to be citizens. I would make sure that's in the bill. At the same time, we need to streamline our immigration processes. I have guys that have worked for me for 15 years. They've been on several different visas, uh, paid five grand to an attorney to get them through their citizenship and still can't get their citizenship. That's a broken system. When you go to try and get citizenship right now and you're told I'll have a hearing for you in three and a half, four years, that's a broken system. Um, we need to look at the numbers that, are, that we need to come across here legally. We need to review that. Um, for those that are already here illegally, we need to put a process in place. They need to get in line so that they can get their legal status here to go to work. We need a comprehensive plan, but we also need to look at our, our temporary visas. H2B, those temporary visas are grossly, grossly uh, undermanned right now. If you talk to farmers, if you talk to landscapers, if you talk to uh, people in the hotel retail business, they need way more people. There's plenty of jobs available. To me, there's an area where if we bolstered the numbers of H2B so people could come here legally, pay taxes, be part of a great society, now we begin to solve this issue. Michael Bennett ran on this issue back in 2010. He said he would solve it. It is not solved. I'm on a mission. When I hit the US Senate, this is one of my number one priorities and I wanna solve this issue for Colorado, for America. To our students, Nayeli. I think as an undocumented student myself, um, having to be left with in the limbo after DACA was put on pause back in 2016 was kind of really bouncing back and forth with this new court decision that was just made last week. And you mentioned a lot of all these jobs being available and not enough employees because of not holding legal status. Um, I think what really drives dreamers to keep doing the work and building the economy in the U.S. is having that legal status and having that being bounced back and forth is kind of worrying. And knowing that Judge Hannon might end up saying, I don't agree with the new court laws. How would you put into place this legal path like you were mentioning, not just to citizenship, because maybe that's not what everyone else wants, maybe just holding that legal status to work and fill this these job openings with the knowledge that all these people have? I think it, it starts with a comprehensive program. The reason this has failed so many times in Congress is because we've tried to segregate issues and solve one issue, then we're gonna solve the next issue, then we're gonna solve the next one. We need a comprehensive program that does all of it at one time. That's the only way you can get 60 votes in the US Senate is to put something comprehensive on that we can get some good Democrats to come across the aisle with some good Republicans to solve this issue. I'm a master at that. I've been doing that for the last 35 years of my career. 
I, I, my, our business is here in Denver. I'm a contractor, but I've had to deal with tons and tons of municipalities. And guess what? If you're working in Denver, you get to talk to a few Democrats every once in a while. I've been able through my experience to bring teams together of people that want to solve an issue. I'm going to use that skill set to solve this issue. I'm excited about it. It'll be one of the very first bills that I run. Naomi. Thank you for your comments. I greatly appreciate those. Um, I would like to state that America was built off immigration. We, yet we treat immigrants as unworthy of human rights and equal opportunity. And the same treatment is aimed at indigenous people as well, regardless of the fact that they were the original stewards of this land. Now with this next question, I greatly appreciate how you've been answering questions, but I don't want this to be opinionated. I would prefer a step-by-step -step or as you said, four point plan option idea, if you could present it in that way. What are you going to do step-by-step -step to create equal opportunity and equal human rights to immigrants and indigenous people while convincing your political party to support you? Well, I'll try my best. Um, that's a lot of pressure though. <laughs> I think it starts with respect. Uh, that's a key word in my uh, growth as a as a, a young student. Uh, through I, I went through a Catholic uh, school as a as a young kid, and one thing that we learned was the word respect. And if you don't treat others the way you want to be treated, then how can you expect them to respect you? expect them to respect you, sorry, tongue twister. But I really believe in that thought. And so uh, we have to balance policy with equality. And, and what I mean by that is we need to make sure that we encompass as many people as we can in a policy that does as much as it can for all the people. It shouldn't discriminate against anyone. And so I've been a big proponent of that is making sure we are, are inclusive at my company, you get graded on your character, you get graded on your work, you get graded on your ability to respect others. And if you're a good person, you advance at my company. I live and die by that. That's the one thing that I think is really important. We shouldn't be judging people about their religious beliefs, about their gender, about any of that stuff. That's all their own opinion. That's not something that as a business, I should be judging people. And I want to advance people that want to work hard. That's the one criteria I have. And so I think if you take that criteria to the U.S. Senate and you look at bills that way to make sure that it's supportive of people, despite anything else, it's going to be good for Colorado. All right. Gabe. Awesome. Thank you. So um, you mentioned um, that you want less people coming in here illegally um, and, and more legally and stuff. Um, and so my question is, like a, a lot of people who are at the border and stuff are trying to um, find ways to come in legally and stuff. However, those are very, very limited or very inaccessible and stuff and have like very hard criteria um, to reach in order for, for it to work. So my question would be, what would you propose to fix um, the long wait times, the criteria and to find more, just more um, opportunities for people to be able to come into the country? Well, I, I think there's a limit as to what the United States can accept in immigration in any one given year. I don't know what that number is. I think there's economists out there that can talk about job growth, that can talk about 
uh, growth of our economy that can tell us how many immigrants can come into the United States and still maintain some balance. I believe there has to be balance about that issue. Uh, but at the same time, we've got to know who's coming in. We can't have a situation where we have people coming across illegally that we don't know who they are, where they've been, uh, if they're on a terrorist watch list. I think that number's up to 78 right now. Those are people we've actually caught coming across the border. Uh, so there has to be a line, if you will. Uh, I, I don't know how long the line needs to be, but I do know that if we fix the system and we also have a system here that's ready to receive people in a timely fashion, and we improve on the processes here so they're more predictable, we can shorten that time. And so I've been an advocate, as I said, with a comprehensive bill that does all of those things. All right, Brian. As I was listening to uh, some of your solution, um, some of the um, biggest concern of mine is the fact that um, we have um, states that actually have gone around with the immigration laws and actually have violated uh, human rights. And to us, it's like, we don't do that. We already verify who they are and whatnot, and we're just sending them to the, to the right place with the right resources for them. And those states are now sending them to other states to say, hey, we have this problem. And it's not ours anymore, it's yours. And that's our concern because now, I mean, we're Colorado is very purple. We're now kind of in battle ready for those uh, human trafficking from states that literally violated human rights. And what are, how are we going to be able to hold those states accountable at a federal level versus a state level? I think we miss the point when we start to talk about individual states. This is a national crisis. The border is a national border. And when people come across the border and they inundate towns, uh, El Paso County had 6,000 come into their town in the last month. They've inundated their medical systems. They've inundated their uh, education systems. Uh, they've just overwhelmed them. And I think what you're seeing is some of those border states start to say, we can't do this on our own. We need help. And I think what you're seeing is a cry for help. They're trying to draw focus to this issue so that we can get a government, i.e. Congress, to solve this. That's why I'm running. That's why I'm going. We need somebody that recognizes this is a national issue. It's affecting all of the states, especially when you start talking about the drug trafficking that's coming across and what it's done to our kids. 107,000 young adults have passed away this last year from drug overdose. Personal story for me because we have a very close family friend, 25-year-old daughter they lost to fentanyl overdose. We've got to do better at our border. And I believe that these governors are trying to draw attention to this so we can solve it nationally. That's why I'm running. That's why you need to vote for me on November 8th because I'm going to go solve this issue. I kind of want to touch back on how you were talking about just kind of updating 
immigration laws that are currently in place for people that withhold visas or trying to get a a visa that are already in the United States just because I feel like for my part at least if my sister would have sponsored me I would have had to leave the U.S. and have a wait time about 20 years so that's pretty much the all the time that I've lived in the U.S. so I really want to ask how would you independently try to make those updates to the outdated immigration system that we have going back so many years? Well, uh, we got to start over. <laughs> I mean, a, a policy that's going to force you to go home for 20 years so you can come back here doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, and so that's how I come at this. Uh, we've got to look at the policies that are in place right now, figure out which ones we need to toss out that just are not working, and then get down to brass tacks and say, okay, how can we make an immigration system function that's fair, that's predictable, that's short-term, so we don't have to have people waiting 15, 20 years, that's not acceptable, and it's predictable. That way people that come here to the United States know this is the system, I need to sign up for it, it's equitable, I can get treated fairly, and I can get into the United States and be a producing uh, citizen that pays taxes and has a, a great life and has that American dream that my wife and I have had in front of us that all immigrants should have. And so you, we've got a, there's a whole lot of work to do. Awesome. So uh, I really appreciate how you did that kind of in a uh, bullet point form for me. I really uh, like that answer that you gave me. Uh, my follow-up question I think is going to be more around like you mentioned respect and how I think that I greatly, greatly agree with you that it is a matter of rec- respect and recognition. Um, when it comes down to specifically indigenous being treated as immigrants on their own land, what treaties are you going to fight to have honored and I guess collaborated with um, and tribes to honor those um, treaties to show that respect so that way you can show that we are not or prove to, I guess, the people that you believe we are not immigrants um, because those treaties, treaties have never been honored And that's also why we feel like immigrants here on this land as well. And I feel like that has a lot to do with immigration reform, too. Well, uh, we need to treat all people with respect and and indigenous people, the American Indians, the people that were here for years and years um, through, you know, that's this is their home. And we should be respectful of that. If there's a treaty in place and it's not being honored, then I'd like to know about that. I'd like to be able to dig into that and find out why is it that we're not honoring that treaty and be able to sit down with people that know a lot more about it than I do to really uh, walk through the details of that. There's some specific ones I know a little bit about, water storage, water usage down with the Ute Indians in in Durango and, and down in those areas that haven't been honored we've got to do better. Um, I know we have a water shortage, but it shouldn't come out of uh, one person's water rights and not another's. There needs to be balance to those issues. Um, I'll sit down with anybody. I'll discover exactly what it is that they need to have taken care of, and then we'll see what we can do to move that issue forward. Cool. So for my follow-up and stuff, um, it's it's more based on uh, Nayeli's question and stuff about DACA. Um, As we know, there is DACA. Um, however, there are still thousands of other immigrant youth like myself who don't have DACA and stuff or whose applications are still in limbo. What would you suggest um, 
for these youth whose future is on the line and who are maybe coming out of college, you know, who are graduating college um, since they cannot work. So what would you suggest for them or what would you propose for them to do um, in this in this time of uncertainty? Well, again, I'll go back to my answer that I gave earlier. This We need comprehensive reform. As you guys have pointed out, there's all kinds of issues, starting with a border that's not safe, and then you go through DACA, then you go through people that are here undocumented that aren't part of DACA, and then you go through a system that doesn't allow people to come here and be predictable on how they get here. This, this whole system needs to be revamped. And, and I'd be an advocate for sitting down with a bipartisan committee at the U.S. Senate where we say, okay, let's fundamentally fix this. Let's fix it now. I think what you're seeing is the national recognition that's taken place over the last year and a half, uh, complete with people moving people around the country to make this you know, a focal point, is starting to attract the attention of the American uh, American voter, and the American voter wants to solve this issue. I want to help them solve that issue. And so I would be an advocate for sitting down and making sure that we have a comprehensive program that solves all of it. That's how you get good balanced bills that get through the U.S. Senate. You got to remember, you got to have 60 votes. So if uh, all or none never ends up working too well. So I'll be an advocate for that. I would like to pass my um, follow-ups to uh, my co-panelists. You actually brought up a great point of making your vote count um, for us, since personally I am not able to vote as I'm not a U.S. citizen, but would you be able to write or be up for writing a letter to hold a vote with Congress once you go into office, since you wouldn't go into office till January? Since DACA is at a limbo with Judge Hannon, would you be able to hold the vote with Congress on trying to make a review together and not have such a judgmented, clouded um, decision being brought to the table? Well, I guarantee when I get to Congress, we're going to make this an issue and we're going to take it up with the entire Congress. That was Republican U.S. Senate candidate Joe O'Day answering questions from students at MSU Denver. After the break, we hear them question Democrat Michael Bennett. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado voters have lots of decisions to make this November. Who will head the state as governor? Who will represent us in the U.S. House and Senate? And the ballot also has questions on everything from psychedelics to school lunches. Follow CPR's in-depth election coverage from our public affairs team, stories and conversations from around the state and from Washington, D.C., Listen every day to CPR News, and for even more coverage, come to CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. A panel of students from Metropolitan State University in Denver recently had the opportunity to question Colorado's two U.S. Senate candidates in person. Before the break, we heard what Republican Joe O'Day had to say about immigration. Now the students asked the same questions of Democratic incumbent Michael Bennett. Once again, I served as the moderator of their conversations. Americans know our immigration system is in need of meaningful reform. How will you get Congress to finally pass comprehensive immigration reform and what would be the major components of this plan? 
And this is really a, a very personal issue for me. My, mo my mother is an immigrant to the United States, and my grandparents were immigrants to the United States. When they came here, they were Polish Jews who survived the Holocaust in Warsaw and with an aunt. They were the only ones who survived. They went to Stockholm, Sweden for a year, and then they went to Mexico City for a year, and then they came to the United States, the only country in the world where they felt they could rebuild their shattered lives. And I've traveled the state widely, and I've yet to meet an immigrant who's got a stronger accent than my grandparents had. And I've never met more patriotic people than my grandparents were, not because they thought this country was perfect, far from it. They thought the country had a way of fixing its mistakes and that they could be part of that from the moment they, they became citizens of this country. This is why I became part of the Gang of Eight in 2013 that wrote the Comprehensive Immigration Bill that passed the Senate with 68 votes, um, and the components of that bill, John McCain led the Republicans, I was one of the four Democrats, and I believe when we get to the, when we finally stop uh, beating ourselves, with, you know, or creating these self-inflicted wounds that we're creating on immigration, the bill we pass is gonna look a lot like what we passed in 2013, a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million people that are here the most progressive DREAM Act that had ever been conceived of, much less passed on the floor of the Senate, all the visa issues, the agriculture issues, all the stuff that's so unpredictable for business and for people that want to work here, you know, we need to deal with that. And we did deal with that in that bill. And we had $40 billion of border security in that bill so the American people would know that we had a secure and humane border. That's what we have to get back to. Tragically, that bill never got a vote in the House of Representatives. We passed it out of the Senate, as I said, never got a vote in the House because the Tea Party, the free, so-called Freedom Caucus, just exercised a veto. And it's my own belief that if we had passed that bill and had been signed, that Donald Trump would never have been elected president of the United States. So I consider that an American tragedy that we haven't gotten it done. And people need to understand how important immigration is to this country. If you look at the history of our country economically, every single year, on average, we grow 3% a year. We go up, we go down, but on average, it's 3%. 2% of that is organic, 1% of that is immigration. So fully a third of the economic growth in this country is due to immigration. And when you think about the nature of the competition that we face right now with Beijing, just to pick one place, um, our, 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 our economic self-interest means that we have to deal with this. And I'm continuing to work with Republicans to see if we can get any of them to, um, to, to pursue any aspects of immigration reform. Most re recently with a friend named Mike Crapo from Idaho on the agriculture provisions that I, again, I wrote in 2013 and the Farm Workers Union asked me to carry it for Democrats and find a Republican, which I was able to do, but I haven't been able to find another one because they're, they're frankly, in a party where the, the, their president, their last president was somebody who began his campaign by riding his escalator down Trump, Trump Tower and calling Mex Mexicans rapists, and he went on to win the presidency. He went on to win, uh, his nomination went on to win the presidency. And I hope very strongly that once this election is over with, we're gonna be able to get back to the negotiating table and figure out how to address this very, very serious problem that we have. Let's go back to our student panelists. 
This time we'll start with Nayeli. As an undocumented student myself, um, I was left with little to no choice after DACA was put on hold. And even now with this new decision, that really leaves me to, again, no answer. And having to constantly depend on a system that would want me to leave 20 years to get a legal status without living in a place that I don't call home. Um, with constant bills of immigration reform for all, like you mentioned, always being tossed out. Setting aside DACA from the broken immigration system, we constantly put forward to fix. Why has a solution for DACA and a solution, say, for my legal status not been set aside from the whole immigration system. Did you, you, you came here when you were two, right? I, that, I did. I, I read that. Um, look, it, ha it hasn't up till now because there was a hope that we were gonna be able to do this comprehensively and the dreamers were saying, don't do anything for us that, you, that, that you're not doing for our parents. You know, that was the, that, that is what people were saying. I think that if we could pass a dream, a, a dream Act today by itself, we should try to do that. And we'll see whether we have the opportunity to do that in the lame duck session. As you know, I mean, just what you just said, the court case um, makes it imperative that we get something done here. And that's why I think we should pass legislation that, that protects dreamers. Um, I, I also, you know, when, when Barack Obama actually began the DREAM Act, I had my staff in Colorado go out across Colorado and sign people up for this, you know, for the DREAMer program. So that's another reason this is personal for me, and I really hope we can pass the law. 90% of the American people support right. doing the right thing for DREAMers, and we should do it. All right. Naomi, next question. So you... I um, really kind of connect with you a little bit when you said that your parents were also immigrants here who had survived from Hitler, being that Hitler got his ideas of genocide from Andrew Jackson, who had slaughtered millions and millions of my people here in the United States. And here, my people, indigenous people, um, are considered to be just as worthless as immigrants and were treated just the same with as much, if not more, unequal rights. So my question to you is within the system, how are you going to, A, honor those treaties, those ones such as um, Treaty of Fort Wise, Little Arkansas, Arkansas Treaty, Treaty of Fort Laramere, uh, the Ute Treaty of 1868, um, how are you going to honor those? Like step-by-step -step processes. If you're going to bring in my people, how are you going to bring in my people to get a seat at the table? And when it comes to getting those equal rights for us and the immigrants, how are you going to do that as well? What We get that the system is broken, but what are you going to do to glue it together to make it more functional and adequate to assist us in getting you know, correct citizenship? America was built off immigration. Why did we stop? Well, I think we stopped because, unfortunately, Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. And historically, there has been, <laughs> there has been, you know, if you look historically, there's, you know, there are moments in the country's history when you have um, uh, more, more, more liberal, I, with small L, liberal approaches to immigration, and then you have more conservative approaches. It kind of goes back and forth. And Donald Trump, I think, you know, unfortunately, as I said, I think if we passed the bill in 2013, we wouldn't have elected him president, and this, these issues would have been dealt with. And what we will end up with very specifically is the stuff that I talked about earlier, you know, those four components of the bill. I just want to mention that I was 
um, at the site of the Sand Creek Massacre two weeks ago with Deb Holland, who's the first Native American Interior Secretary uh, in America, and we were doubling the, the acreage at Sand Creek as a result of, um, uh, of uh, funding that I was able to get through appropriations packages. We also passed a record amount of money for water infrastructure in the, inf in the infrastructure bill to try to meet treaty obligations that we have never met to fulfill the unfilled need that, uh, that uh, Native Americans have had with respect to water in the Southwest, the Ute Mountain Ute and the Southern Ute tribes here in Colorado. And we got to keep pushing. You know, we were, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the, lo the, the, the Little Arkansas uh, Treaty. That was, um, without revealing what was discussed, when I had um, a meeting with Deb Holland after, uh, after the public session with the tribal leadership, there was a lot of discussion about that particular treaty and, and the way in which you know, it was not being honored or needed it to be honored. I will say there wasn't necessarily disagreement among the uh, tribal leaders about how we should fulfill that responsibility. But thank you very much for raising that. Eric? While there are those with DACA, thousands of other immigrant youth are not able to get the work authorization and wait in limbo as well. What would you propose as a solution for all the youth whose future is on the line? I think we have to pass comprehensive immigration reform. I think we've learned with DACA that there is not an administrative answer to this issue. We've got to figure out, we have to legislate. We've got to pass legislation. And I think we've got to build a, we have to build a constituency for change in this country that demands that the legislation get passed. And, and I know people feel like this has taken much too long. I feel that way. I mean, this should have been done when you were two years old. It hasn't been done. Now, there are people that are DACA recipients who are middle-aged, and there are other people that you're, you're talking about, that until we create some sort of legal framework, we're never going to be able to solve the problem. And I really am, I've been committed to this the whole time that I've worked in the Senate because I, I was, partly because of okay. my, my mom's circumstances that I described earlier, but also because I, I was the superintendent of a school district that was 57% Latino where many kids got to the ninth grade and realized back then that they, were gonna, they would never have the chance to come to Metro because of their legal status. And we changed the law mm. back then. But this, this is one of the, I think, when I think about the headwinds that our country faces, this is one of those headwinds that we've got to address. Thank you. Brian, your question. Thank you. Um, my question has to deal with the, the most recent events, uh, such as um, Texas and Florida. Uh, what they have done is um, human trafficking, taking immigrants to other strongholds, such as California, Massachusetts, to bring uh, awareness to the immigration issue that they're claiming is a problem. And um, when you're creating policy, are you going to be able to hold those states accountable for human trafficking? Because I'm a little concerned as Colorado is very purple, and I'm wondering, suddenly, Tessit might be sending a buckload 
into Denver and then dropping it off. Right. They've certainly threatened that. The governor of Texas has threatened that. The governor of Florida has threatened that. You know, when when um, under the Trump administration, there was the, the that massive separation of children from their parents at the border. My mom called me. She doesn't call me very often, but she called me and she said, you know, I see myself in these kids because she was separated from her parents for three years during the World War II, and she believed her parents were were um, were killed. That she'd been told they were killed. And I can tell you this, as her son, this stuff has intergenerational effects. It doesn't just. It's not just the person who's um, faces that trauma that deals with it. It goes on for generations, and that's why you know these guys that are sending these people across state lines um, are, are, not, are not actually trying to fix the issue. They're just trying to create, you know, commotion to try to support themselves politically and galvanize their base. My opponent in this race, by the way, supports what they've done. He says that he, he thinks, I don't know if he said that here, but that's what he said out on the campaign trail. It's, right. a, it's another reason why we have to fix our broken immigration system. All right. We're... Back to our student panelists. Any follow-up questions for the senator? I, I really appreciate how much importance you say is going into this. Um, and again, trying to glue back this broken immigration system, but um, really having to, um, someone mentioned in the last interview, trying to build the immigration system from the ground up, which merely seems impossible and a long time to wait. And so really, what obstacles have been stopping Congress from really getting to a point where either updating the irrational laws that we have for people to come into the country, even without taking into consideration allegations of children being kept in cages at the border mm -hmm. and being kept from their families, what would you say would be a way to push forward these options without having it to be kicked out all over again. I think that we don't have to kick it all over again. We, we, what we had in 2013 that we don't have today is a Republican Party in the form of John McCain and Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio and, and um, uh, Jeff Flake who believed that the Republicans would never elect another president unless they helped fix the immigration system. That's what they believed. And what happened instead was Trump, I'm not going to repeat it again, but Trump came down his escalator and said what he said and went on to win the nomination and went on to win the presidency. And so now it's hard to find a Republican in Washington, D.C. who actually work on these issues because, um, because for fear of Donald Trump. And I'm not, I'm not excusing that. I'm just explaining wh wh why we are where we are. And we don't have to rip out our immigration system root and branch or start over. That's not what we have to do. We have to create a pathway for the 11 million people that are here. We've got to get the, the, the DACA kids uh, in a position where they're legal and on a pathway to citizenship. We've got to straighten out all the other visa issues that make it so hard for people to go back and forth you know, to their home country and come back to the United States and work, like in agriculture. And we've got to make sure the American people know that their border is, uh, is secure and that, that the immigration policies in this nation at the border and elsewhere are humane. And that is what I will, that's what I've fought for the whole time that I'll be in the Senate. 
And that's what I'm going to continue to fight for. Any more follow-up questions from our Seton panel? Yes. Uh, thank you for addressing how you are continuing to work to push through the treaties and honor them in the ways that they need to be, especially with Deb, Deb Holland. However, um, I know that was a lot of content in my last question, but we didn't get to answer the part where you, the plan that you want to put in place in order to also, um, you know, really honor those immigrants and equal rights because they're here under all these circumstances, so they go through a lot of exploitive processes where they end up not being able to like have great working conditions, like being sprayed with pesticides or overworked or sexually harassed, and they can't say anything because they'll get deported right. because somebody's going to call HR on right. them, you know? And those are also indigenous people to this land, regardless what their uh, society has taught them to be, they're still indigenous to this land as well. And that's very important to me is honoring them. So what laws are you fighting for to push that they don't have to worry about getting deported for reporting things like that and for fighting for a safe, healthy working environment? Yeah, I mean, that's it. In, in the, and to be very specific, the Farm Work Modernization Act is the name of the law that passed the House of Representatives. We are negotiating things like pay, working conditions, the ability of people to be able to sue, sue their employer if they need to sue their employer to redress their, their rights. That's an issue. It's interesting you put your finger on that because that is an issue that is um, there's a lot of disagreement about, you know, and 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 that. But that's been one of the things that you know the farm workers uh, who I've been working with on this legislation have said is very important to them. So we've continued to push on on that. With respect to you know tribes, I think that I do think that the in the massive investments in this is not a this is not an issue of immigration status, but an issue of trying to honor the commitments that have been made. The 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 billions of dollars for water infrastructure that we put in the infrastructure bill that I I wrote this bill. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but I wrote it with Martin Heinrich and and a couple others. Um, this is a, a big step forward to try and at least in that limited aspect of our. Um, government-to-government -government relationship to, to honor the commitment that has, that has not yet been fulfilled. Derek. Senator Bennett, um, you claim Trump started the separation from children on the border. Um, however, after doing some investigation, I found out it actually started underneath the Obama administration, and it has continued by the Biden administration. Both parties are to blame. However, why are you painting it as a Republican problem? Well, the question I was asked was what, what, what intervening event happened that changed the politics so that we couldn't pass immigration reform? And I think an honest answer to that is that um, Donald Trump's election in this country is an anti, on an anti-immigrant platform uh, is what led to the changes in that politics. I agree with you that this has been um, these have been issues that uh, every administration has had to deal with. I think the Trump administration took it to an entirely different, different level. That was Democratic incumbent U.S. Senator Michael Bennett, who's running for re-election. Earlier, we heard from Republican Joe O'Day. Both candidates answered questions from a panel of students from Metropolitan State University of Denver. 
They include Brian Bartholomew, a senior studying chemistry with a focus on education. Eric Elmcantor, a senior studying computer information systems with a focus on security. Naomi Hawkes, a senior biology major with a minor in geographic information systems. Nayeli Sanchez, a fourth-year student majoring in business management. And Gabe Trujillo, a first-generation college student pursuing a psychology degree with a minor in Spanish translations. The students also asked the candidates about affordable housing and people experiencing homelessness. We'll post links to the complete panel discussions in the Colorado Matters podcast later today at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The vast majority of teachers in Colorado are white, while 45% of students are students of color. Research shows they need to see teachers who look like them. When I walk in the hallways of schools that I support, those kids, when they see me and I look like them, they run to me. Colorado now has a plan to recruit and retain more teachers of color. Read all about it at CPR.org and in the Colorado Public Radio app. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Former social workers say kids are slipping through the cracks in El Paso County. They say it's because of turnover in the Department of Human Services. As KRCC's Abigail Beckman reports, those who remain say they're suffering through massive work overload. Child welfare advocates say that in order to be effective, social workers serving children should have around 12 cases at a time. When Brittany Williams worked for El Paso County's Children, Youth and Family Services, she says she had as many as 52. We're doing the opposite of what the research says that we should be doing. Which is reducing caseloads for the best outcomes for children and families. There are other states who are doing it better than we are, and we're not looking at them. We're just turning a blind eye. Williams says she thought El Paso County was a place where she could make a difference. She quit in July of 2021 as a direct result of her caseload. She's among the more than 400 social workers who have left the agency over the past six years. Another former employee, whose name we're not using in order to protect her current job, quit this summer. I kind of felt like day-to-day was what fire needed to be put out first. So I had to kind of look and think which kid could make it another day or two and which one couldn't. Turnover has been a persistent problem at the DHS office, but last year it accelerated. Across the organization, 50 percent more people left than usual, according to data provided to KRCC. This, as the state says, El Paso County deals with more calls to its abuse and neglect hotline than any other county in the state. The agency has also come under fire after two children recently died from fentanyl overdoses in separate incidents. The families of both had past involvement with DHS. The agency is trying to offer more support, though. Truthfully, we're not scaring anyone out of here. That's Jason Lester with El Paso County DHS. He says recent job openings have come from people moving away or finding a similar position elsewhere. We're really wanting to get people the support that they need so they can stay. And we want people to stay as long as they can. Lester says there's a solution box for submitting ideas. They send out encouraging emails every week and they offer flexibility in remote working. Starting in July, workers with a higher number of cases got an additional stipend. For some, though, that effort misses the mark. People can't do their work. They simply have to tell families there's no availability. That's a current DHS caseworker who has asked to remain anonymous for fear of retribution. They're on a wait list 
to get their caseworker. I've seen that happen where there's nobody to take them. El Paso County isn't unique. Human services departments across the country have historically been underfunded and under-resourced. That's according to Julie Collins with the Child Welfare League of America, which helps set best practice standards and does advocacy work. She says it's important to look beyond the average caseload to the agency as a whole. It might look like they're fairly reasonable, but what it doesn't take into account is maybe a quarter of positions are not filled. And Another quarter of them are people on long-term sick leave because of the stress that they're under. Collins says the workload can cause what she calls emotional and moral injuries. Because they know they're not getting to do what needs to happen to help the families, to really know whether children are safe or to do the investigation the way that they need to. Pay is another factor in El Paso County. In neighboring Douglas County, the same job has a lighter caseload and the mid-range salary is several thousand dollars higher. Caseworkers in Arapahoe and Fremont counties also have the opportunity to make more money. Chris Garvin is the deputy executive director at El Paso County DHS. He says that as a government agency, the budget is tight. We don't have, you know, a checkbook. We can just write checks all the time. We have to manage that allocation we get. And we're always advocating at the state and federal level to improve that. Garvin says it's important to tell the story behind the high turnover rates. You can't fault a CPS caseworker for wanting to go to a hospital job or to Fort Carson or to a school district job because they're more eight to five and probably less crisis. And often they pay more than we are able to. In all, Garvin says they're continuing to fill open positions. He points to recognition from the state for meeting performance outcomes for the past three years. The threshold for the award is a 70 percent completion rate for all services provided. Last year, El Paso County hit 78.1 percent, making it one of the top five counties in the state. But for past and present caseworkers, those statistics don't make up for what's happening on the ground. Kids are going to slip through the cracks, and it's not the fault of the workers. They're doing the best that they can. She says there's just not enough staff to share the load. Abigail Beckman, KRCC News. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.